Good morning. You guys ready to get in the Word? All right. We are in chapter 6 of the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we have been in what is the first recorded sermon of Christ in Luke's Gospel. So we're making our way kind of a little bit at a time, and we are, uh, we're now heading into verse 37. I do want to back up, though, because I think there's an important theme that we're going to kind of keep bumping up against as Jesus is expanding his ministry. Uh, back at the beginning of this sermon in verse 20, Jesus introduces this thing called the kingdom of God. You guys remember that? He said, blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom. His idea was there is this kingdom, this community, and it is preserved for those who were poor, not because they're poor, but because that they have entrusted themselves despite their poverty into the care of Jesus Christ. They've made themselves followers of Jesus Christ. Now, when I say the word kingdom, I have to admit, and I hope that you'll join me in this, that that's something I'm not very familiar with. So like, think about the United States. Does anybody know of a king? running around in the U.S., ruling over us. Yeah, see, that's just completely foreign to our, our understanding of citizenship and living in a community. Um, we're all about democracy, and man, I'm pro-democracy. That's a great thing. But it doesn't help me understand the idea of a kingdom. See, a kingdom has a king, and the king rules the king is sovereign. Nobody else's opinion matters. He decides what happens, when it happens, where it happens, how it happens. And everybody else is one of two things. They are either subject to the king or they're out of the kingdom. That's just how it works. So that, isn't that foreign to us? But yet as Christ followers, we're said to be in the kingdom of God. And guess who the king is in the kingdom of God? God is. And whether we like it or not, want it or not, recognize it or not or whatever, like that is the deal. And God calls us, Jesus here is calling us to come under his rule and reign in our lives as his community. So here's the deal. Members of God's kingdom, they're called to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So there's a priority there. We're supposed to make this more important than anything else in life. And then there's this prayer that Jesus gave his followers to ask for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's pretty uh, intense, isn't it? And we don't live in his kingdom in a concrete, tangible, physical way. So we have to somehow kind of grasp this spiritual uh, concept and then apply it to everyday life, just in how we make our decisions. So we're going to revisit as we get further into this sermon, this idea of this kingdom. And actually, scripture leads us to think about two kingdoms, right? We said this a couple of weeks ago. There is a kingdom of this world, and then there is the kingdom of God. 
This kingdom of the world is also called the domain of darkness. And right now, it is in power. Now, it's still under the sovereignty of God, but make no mistake, the influence of the kingdom of darkness is as real as that chair that you're sitting on, is this lectern right here? It's happening all around us. 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So there is a kingdom of this world, a domain of darkness, but there's another kingdom, the kingdom of God, this kingdom that Jesus was ushering in, and it has been undermining the kingdom of the world for 2,000 years through the activity of the church. This group of people that are called the ecclesia, the assembly of God, those who have chosen to surrender themselves and fall under the kingship, the reign, the rule of Christ. Now, in this series, we have referred to God's kingdom as an upside down kingdom. Remember that a couple of weeks ago? And the reason we called it that was because the kingdom of God flips everything that this world values, all of the things that are important to the people of this world, it flips it right upside down. And it's as unnatural as could possibly be. It's, it's not our in instinct to do things the way God would do it. It's our instinct to take care of ourselves, to do our own things, to, to um, advance ourselves. Those are the values of the right side up kingdom, the kingdom of this world. And uh, as I was thinking about what these two kingdoms represent and this idea of a right side up kingdom, I thought the things of this world are intoxicating, alluring, aren't they? Not just for the world, even for us. As we're going along in life and we see things like power, things like pleasure, things like popularity and prosperity, aren't those things kind of alluring and enticing? We can get intoxicated on those values. And I guarantee you the kingdom of darkness is all about promoting those things and making them the most important things in our lives to the neglect of the values of God's kingdom. So I feel a little bit like what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to bring some sobriety in the context of our intoxication with the things of this world to help us get clear-headed, to, to see clearly about what's really going on here. I mean, think about physical intoxication. I, I'm sure nobody in here has ever been there, but um, doesn't it desensitize us to what is real? Doesn't it sort of obscure the consequences of our choices, be those positive or negative? Intoxication with the world, with this right side up kingdom, it desensitizes us to the real consequences of our choices, both positive and negative, as it relates to our spiritual well-being. Now, I'm not talking about your salvation. We are eternally secure. That's all there. We're going to talk a little more about that in a minute. 
but we still have real choices to make that really matter. And if we're intoxicated with the things that are important to this world, we will become desensitized to the things that are most important to God. So Jesus is giving us some spiritual sobriety here. He's uh, continuing to reinforce this upside-down kingdom that is countercultural, that is counterintuitive. It's unconventional, but here's what he offers us. He offers us the gravity of grace to keep our feet firmly planted in the territory of an upside-down kingdom so that we can stay connected with him. So... Quick review of the sermon so far. He started with blessings and woes. Those blessings were attached to the kingdom of God. The woes were attached to the kingdom of this world. And then he introduced what seems absolutely absurd. Love your enemies. It just sounds completely idiotic. Who would do that? Someone who was an enemy who has been loved. That's who would do that. Loved by a perfect, holy, righteous God. When we get to um, verse 36, we come to a hinge which really wraps up that first half of the sermon and then sets up the second half. It is these words, be merciful even as your father is merciful. So now that's going to be the controlling idea going forward. Everything that we're going to talk about next is going to be this idea of how do I understand what it means to be merciful? What does that look like? How does that work as I'm relating to the people around me? Six verses. We're going to go 37 to 42. We're going to see a merciful mandate. Then we're going to see leadership liability that's certainly very real. And then we're going to see healthy Humility. So look at verse 37. And in these first two verses, we get four commands or imperatives. And uh, in the Greek language, it's in a, a form that's, that's basically saying what's being commanded here is to be practiced continually. So if you aren't doing it, you should start and then keep doing it. If you're doing it and you shouldn't be doing it, then you should stop and don't do it again. That's the idea here, and here's how it starts. Verse 37, judge not. This is two negative commands, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. So don't judge, don't condemn. Now, this is not a restriction of just legal due process. That government is established to make laws and enforce them for the good of the community. So it's not prohibiting that. It's also not telling us to cease evaluation of any kind. I mean, we're told to keep our brains engaged. We're told to be discerning, to, to make distinctions between what is right and wrong and good and bad and true and false. We're supposed to be aware of that and make evaluations about that. So that's, that's not what it's talking about here. Judging rightly is discerning truth from falsehood based on an objective standard, not on our personal preferences. So what is it that Jesus is telling us to stop? 
Judging here represents harsh, self-righteous criticism. That's a good summary statement. This form of judgment, it delights in finding, exposing the flaws of others. It takes a lot of joy in that. It's a critical spirit. It chases upward mobility by holding everyone down under guilt and shame. That's what this kind of judgment is all about. It's cruel. It lacks compassion and it is in no way constructive. It's not for the good of others. That's what Jesus is telling us to stop. Stop critiquing the people around you with an attitude of self-righteous superiority. Now, that sounds like a pretty harsh description. And maybe all of us nice people in this room, we would say, I mean, I'm not really judgmental. I mean, like the way that's describing it. I would just say, don't let yourself off the hook. You know? Like, just a little bit of judgmentalism is wrong. <laughs> so it's okay. Like, let's, let's embrace that. Let's just say, you know what? This is bad for me in whatever degree, and it's bad for the people around me. It's bad for my relationships. It's bad for my influence. It stands in the way of the fruitful activity of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is trying to get at here. So he's saying, don't judge, don't condemn. That stuff stands in the way. So if I don't do that, what do I do? Verse 38, forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. There is a lot there. So let's just kind of work our way through it. Forgiveness is the gift we all want from God and others. But isn't it one of the hardest gifts to give away? Isn't it that thing that we just like to hold on to because we feel entitled and justified? You hurt me. And so I'm going to hang on to this as long as I feel like it until I get to a place where I'm like, okay, I'll let it go now. Forgiveness is not that. Forgiveness is to uh, give up the right to punish. And that's what God did with us, isn't it? Now, I want to make a distinction between two things, acquittal and amnesty. So here's what acquittal is. That is, you have gone through due process and you have been declared not guilty because there is a lack of evidence. Now, is there anybody in this room that has no evidence at all of your guilt before a holy God? Certainly not me, okay? So what is it? What is forgiveness? Is it acquittal? No, because we're guilty. There was plenty of evidence. It's amnesty, which means we have been declared not guilty despite the mountain of evidence for our guilt. That's what God has done with us. And that's exactly what he wants us to do for the people around us. Even, as Jeff said last week, with our enemies. That's an upside down world, isn't it? Just doesn't make any sense at all 
Who in the world would do that? God's people would do that. I love this definition of forgiveness. Thomas Watson. Forgiveness is striving against all thoughts of revenge. When we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish well to them. Grieve at their calamities. Pray for them. Seek reconciliation with them. And show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. That's what Jesus is calling for. That's forgiveness. That's amnesty. And then verse 38 is about generosity. And it's not primarily about money. Unfortunately, this verse just gets dis- just perverted all over the place because it's often made about money. When in reality, it's just about interpersonal relationships. It's like Jesus is reinforcing, remember, this idea of mercy? He's saying this is what it looks like as you relate to the people around you. I mean, okay, so here's the rule of Bible study. Context is king, right? We look around a verse to see what does this mean and what does it not mean? So wouldn't it be strange in this sermon that Jesus is giving for him to say, be merciful, don't judge, don't condemn, forgive, and give lots of money because God will just pile it on when you're done. Seriously? No. Here's what Jesus is saying. Be merciful because God's been merciful with you. Don't judge. Don't condemn. Forgive and live generously in every way wherever you see need, especially in the lives of your enemies. That is the upside down kingdom of God. And that will require the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to do. You don't have enough willpower to pull that off. It's going to take the transformational work of God in your life. Now, let me talk about this description of good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It's an awesome illustration. It's... uh, Jesus is using something that would have been very familiar to them, not at all familiar to us. So we're going to learn about it. And this is going to help us understand the generosity of God toward us and that we should show others. This was a marketplace illustration. So you would go to the market to buy grain. And either you or the marketplace vendor would have a container. And uh, he would begin to fill this container up with grain. And once it got close to the top, he would stop shake it up, press it down to make sure there's no space in there. Get as much grain in that container as you can. And once he did that, he'd put more in there and he'd fill it up till it's about to overflow. And then he would actually, you know, there's like a cone at the top of that. So he would kind of poke down a hole in the top of that cone just to create a little more space there and then put a little more grain on top until it's just running over. He knows at that point, this thing is full as full can be. And then you, because of your attire, you would have this robe and there would be this kind of outer covering that you could kind of lift up that would create a a fold, a pocket. And he would take that, that container full of grain and he'd pour it into your lap and you would know that you got everything that you could get from that vendor. That's the picture 
of his generosity, not looking for a way to give you as little grain as he has to, but finding every way to give you every bit that he can. That's the generosity of God. And that's what he's calling us to show the people around us. Pressed down, shaken, overflowing into the lap. So to show mercy, if we're going to understand that command to be merciful, it is to withhold judgment and condemnation. It's to pardon and even provide care if it's needed generously. Children of a merciful heavenly father should be marked by mercy. And Jesus seems to be saying there's an assurance here that the grace his people give will come back to them in surprising ways with overflowing abundance. Now, again, unfortunately, this is made out to be some kind of prosperity, name it, claim it kind of stuff. And that's not the deal. I don't know what God's response, what his generosity, I don't know what that is. And I don't even know that that's going to happen in this life. It could, but it might not. Here's what I do know. Because of who God is and because of the generosity that is very obvious in the sacrifice of God's son, we can count on the fact that I will never, ever, ever surpass God's generosity with my own. Whatever I do, he will match that and surpass it far beyond what I can imagine. I love what one commentator said. Christians can engage in a kind of deficit spending of love because God will always replenish the supply. That's beautiful. Now, let me ask you a question that's just gonna kick you in the face. It did me. What kind of condition would you be in if God used your way of treating others as his standard for how he treated you? Mm. There is some kind of reciprocity here. These are conditional promises. He, He basically says, do this and this will happen. There's a lot of debate about what those relationships are. The question is, is Jesus talking about reciprocity between people, reciprocity between God and man, or both? I think it's reasonable to expect both. Again, I don't want to be dogmatic about defining it, but it just seems like there's something here about our generosity having some effect on God's generosity toward us. And we can just kind of let that sit there, right? And that can be something that we wrestle with. We know that it has nothing to do with salvation. Salvation is by grace, through faith, not as a result of works. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast, right? So it's not about that, but it's about something. I'll let you wrestle with that and uh, come to terms with what God might be doing there. It may be, think about the audience. Jesus isn't just talking to his committed disciples. He's actually talking to a crowd and there's probably even some religious leaders in the room or on the plateau uh, where the sermon's being delivered. 
So perhaps these commands could serve in a similar way that the law did. In other words, the law was meant to show humanity their great need. They were supposed to go, I will never be able to do that. How can I be saved? And then God says, I'll do it for you if you'll let me. So perhaps they would see this and just go, love your enemy, be merciful, don't judge or condemn, forgive and be generous. I can't do that. And Jesus would go, you are so right. Let me do in you what you could never do in yourself. Isn't that beautiful? Mm. Sobriety for those who are intoxicated with self-righteousness. Speaking of sobriety, let's look at leadership liability. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's probably talking to some religious leaders and he wants them to understand that these things he's talking about isn't just for the rest of us. He's talking to them. And honestly, I can think of no one that is in more need of sobriety than leaders. Because leaders can get intoxicated with power, control, you know, making things happen the way they want it to happen. That's a dangerous place to be. So here's what Jesus would say to those who would lead in verse 39. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will not they both fall into a pit? And by the way, this isn't just like tripping off into a ditch. This is like falling into the abyss. That's the seriousness of this picture that he's painting. Then in verse 40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. So the parable is blind leading the blind is a disaster waiting to happen. And a disciple is not above, but will be like his teacher. That ought to be very sobering for the teacher and the student alike. There's, there's a lot happening there. Teachers imprint students. Now, I know there's exceptions. I, I, I know that it's possible to, to be under a poor teacher, to have poor leadership and still turn out okay. But these are proverbs. These are general statements of truth. And I think we can all agree that followers become like emulate their leaders. And so this is a very sobering statement. Now, this whole thing is really about seeing. Notice three times. Um, actually, I'm sorry, that's the next illustration. I got ahead of myself. Um, blindness here, which is also about seeing. This is generally less about what one knows and more about what one thinks about what they know. In other words, do they see the knowledge that they have gained, that they have received from someone else as a gift that they can give away for the good of someone else? Or is their knowledge uh, something that they use for their own purposes, to promote themselves, to protect themselves, to advance their own agenda? That's all route, uh, kind of bound up in pride. Proverbs sixteen eighteen says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit 
before a fall. So self-righteousness, pride, is a formidable threat to teachers and students alike. So Jesus is calling for all of us to think carefully about who we're following and who we're leading. And, you know, we've been talking now for several months about how important it is for us as Christ followers to have a Paul and to have a Timothy, at least, to have somebody who's pouring into our life and for us to be pouring into the life of another. So this is just an encouragement to have some discernment about that. And if you're just going after somebody who seems really smart, then you're going to probably be disappointed. You want to look here for character, heart, maturity. You actually want to see some of these characteristics that Jesus has been describing in his sermon up to this point. That's the kind of person you want to follow, and that's the kind of leader you want to be. Now, anybody who would aspire to offer guidance, and I hope everybody in this room understands that as a follower of Christ, you are called to influence others, to guide others. You have stuff to give away. And what's going to help you do that is humility. And that's, that's where Jesus is going to end this segment. He's going to end it by talking about a lack of humility. And he's going to do it in kind of a humorous way with the picture that he draws. He's going to highlight what pride produces in those who have it. And then he's going to explain how to correct it. So healthy humility, verse 41. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take out the log from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So, as I said a moment ago, the illustration here is all about seeing. Notice that the word see is used three times and notice once. The the word see is just a literal reference to sight, just visual perception. That word notice, however, that has this kind of heightened level of not just sight, but contemplation, understanding, consideration. And he's saying, you know what? You seem to see everybody else's flaws real easily, but you've got this beam coming out the front of your face and you don't seem to be at all aware that it's there. And you want to try and help everybody. What's going on with that? How does that work? That's what Jesus is doing here. Great, great questions. Obviously, anyone who is more aware of everybody else's flaws than their own, they're delusional. They're intoxicated with their own self-righteousness. And they are not going to be able to help anyone. Now, he doesn't say... You, do, you should never take a speck out of somebody else's eye. What he's saying is your qualification for doing so is that you have spent far more time dealing with the issues in your own eyes before you ever go to help somebody else with theirs. 
It's humility. Now, those who aren't willing to do that, he calls hypocrites. Literally, it's a play actor, it's a pretender, and uh, it's that person who gives the impression that, man, I got it going on. I got it all together. I am God's gift to you. I can help you with all of your problems, all your struggles, all your flaws, because I just don't have any. That's the picture. That's hypocrisy. All of us would look at that person and go, seriously? Like, really? I I don't need help from somebody like that. They, They might stick that beam into my eye. So humility is the antidote for hypocrisy. And humility is fueled by a deep awareness of four things. I want to offer these to you. These have encouraged me. I got a long ways to go. But these help me continue to cultivate an attitude of humility. You do not will humility into being. It is simply a... a, a result of awareness. So let me offer these to you. The first thing that you need to be aware of is your worth. Now that may sound a little bit strange. We're talking about humility, right? So I'm supposed to understand how worthy I am? Yes, you should. Humility isn't thinking poorly of yourself. It's thinking rightly of yourself. So here's what is true of you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's what the psalmist says in 139. He praises God for that. You have been created in the image of God. You display to all of creation what God is like, like nothing else. And because of that, you have enormous dignity and worth. And if you don't understand that, it's going to be really difficult for you to have a right view of yourself. Self-loathing is not humility. That's actually discounting the incredible worth that God says you possess. So you got to understand your worth. Secondly, you got to understand your need. John 15:5. Jesus said, "I am the vine, you are the branches." Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Here's the line. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. I don't care how talented you are. I don't care how much you know. Like You can do nothing of eternal significance apart from Christ. That's needy. But if you understand that, you'll have appropriate humility and you'll come to God to meet your need. So we need to understand our worth, understand need. You need to understand God's mercy. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, completely undeserving, except of eternal separation from God, Christ died for us. That's mercy. Can't be earned. Can't be deserved. It's just given as a gift. And then lastly, grace. 2 Peter 1, 3. 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. See, if I understand that God has given me everything I need to do what he's called me to do and that I couldn't do anything to deserve it, then I understand grace. I understand the generosity of God and I can walk in humility because I don't take credit for that. I give him all the credit. Worth, need, mercy, and grace. When you're intoxicated with the values of the kingdom of this world, then those four things will seem invented and irrelevant. They'll just seem like, you know, that's just kind of something that people came up with to make them feel better. But if you get those things, if you've been sobered by the goodness of God in your life, those things will be precious, more precious than anything this world could ever offer. I want to ask you to consider a few questions as we wrap up today. And I hope that what you're hearing here is that God's grace is sufficient wherever you find yourself today. If you have a critical spirit, just be honest about it and let the Lord change that in your life. If, do you struggle with forgiveness? Well, maybe you just need to familiarize yourself with the gift of forgiveness that you've received. Are you generous? Do you understand the generosity of God toward you? Who are you leading? How are you leading? And who are you following? And finally, how might you cultivate humility in your own life in the days ahead? Please prayerfully consider some of those questions. Perhaps there's something else the Lord has pointed out to you today, but let's leave today in a real state of sobriety about the goodness of God.